Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, September 29th, 2010. All right, I'm going to give you all a little bit of a break. (laughs) Today will be a much shorter edition of Fighting for the Faith. The last two episodes have been like three plus hours. I'm getting the emails, Rose, bro, you're killing me. So have you all found your inner sparkle yet? (laughs) It just sounds stupid when you say it. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of weird, bizarre stuff, things being said, and sadly, well, they're not true. So, yeah, we uh, we have to clean things up here at Fighting for the Faith, and that's what we do. And, and the goal really here is to move aside the false doctrine. To, you, know, to, you know, as our one of our bumpers says, you know, we'll be taking your false doctrine now. Mwahaha. The idea is you're, that false doctrine's hurting you. It's hurting you, and it's hurting other people. It's like, you know, somebody who's not trained to wield a sword, swinging it around wildly, and and they end up like, you know, you know, cutting themselves by accident, and whoops, they accidentally cut their neighbor's head off, and oh, you know, you 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 want to you want to take the sword away from that person because they're hurting other people with it. That's what false doctrine is. It's 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 something that really really hurts people. And uh it it leads to problems here in this life because it it, it ultimately one of the things that it does, well ultimately it sends you to hell, but one of the things it does temporally is that it takes away any peace, because there's only two religions in the world. I, I, I've said this before, and I agree with those theologians who've, who've fleshed this concept out. There's two religions in the world. Uh, one religion is the religion of works, uh, and the other is the religion of grace. The The religion of works takes on a plethora of different forms and functions, and the idea behind the religion of works is that, well, ultimately it's just the burblings of... Um, the things that burble up from within, you know, somebody's inner psyche. It's, you know, it's this idea of, of a cosmic quid pro quo. You do these steps. You do these things. You experience, you experience this moral improvement, this life transformation, and dun-da-da-da, 
you merit, either in full or in part, God's favor. And he looks down upon you and go, oh, finally somebody who's getting it right. And, uh, yeah, that's all fantasy world. That, uh, it, the, the other religion basically says, you ain't got nothing to offer God. You are dead in trespasses and sins, and God has you nailed dead to rights. I mean, you have earned and deserved hell and uh, there ain't enough years that your life could, you know, that you can add on to your life to even remotely come close to beginning to pay off the sin debt that you owe regarding God and in His justice. That just, it's just not going to happen. And so, um, it, it, that religion basically teaches that Christ has done it all for us, and and it's good news. We're going to we're going to proclaim to the ends of the earth, you know, every nation. And that includes 21st century United States, 21st century Canada, 21st century Australia, New Zealand, Great Britain, name wherever you're at listening to this uh, program. I just got an email last night from somebody telling me that there's people listening to us in kind of like the remote islands of the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> I can't believe that. It, 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 this uh, uh, Unbelievable. It's just uh, – anyway, that, that's a different tangent. That, so ha- hello to my listeners down there near Kwajalein Atoll in the Solomon Islands and places like that. And uh, greetings to you from our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Anyway, uh, so false doctrine hurts us. It hurts us. It, it, it takes away our peace because ultimately there is no peace in any of those religious uh, systems because how do you know when you've ever done enough? Have you loved God enough? Have you loved your neighbor enough? Have you uh, have you morally improved enough? Have you had enough life transformation? How do you know? Because that's the thing about the law is is that you you can never tick off. You know, uh, my friend Brian Wolfmuller uh, from uh, Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. He did he did this lecture and he pointed this out and I, I told him I was going to steal it. But, you know, I'm having guilt pangs. I I can't steal it. I've used it before, but I've got to give him credit. And that is is that when it comes to the law of God, you know, many people sit down, they have a day planner. It's it's a day planner like the old Franklin Covey system or you go to to Office Depot and you get yourself a day planner. And all of the day planners kind of work off of the idea that you kind of map out the things that you need to accomplish in a week, in a day, in a month, in a year, you know, and, and you chunk it down to its its uh, smallest parts and those smallest parts become things that you need to do on a to-do list okay so uh, your to-do list today might look like something like this today to-do list item number 1 plan day check to-do list item number 2 go to the grocery store buy eggs check um email mom latest photographs from uh uh junior's birthday party check Okay, now here we go. Love your neighbor as yourself. Um, and when do you get to check that box off? Uh, <clears throat> uh, let's see. <laughs> Love neighbor as self. Hmm. Okay, so you go out and you do a random act of kindness. Uh, isn't that the 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 phrase of the day or you know maybe maybe it's oh i know it's not it's not that that's the old one the new one is pay it forward i've heard that one many times you know, lately okay so you decide that you're going to um you, you're going to find some way to pay it forward and so let's say that you uh you find one or two ways to pay it forward you come back to your to-do list love neighbor as self 
yeah, can you check it off that you've done it? You've done two instances of paying it forward, whatever that means. And uh, and can you say that you've accomplished the task? No, you can't because loving neighbor as yourself isn't a to-do list item. It's something that you are to constantly do and do from your heart unbegrudgingly. With pure intents, pure motives. Because, um, you know, we sin against God in thought, word, and deed. So you can't actually ever say, hmm, I've loved, today I've loved my, hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and then, you know, if you're tempted to think, well, well listen, Chris, you know, come on, let's get real here, okay? Um, I, I could check it off like 30 seconds before I go to bed. Really? Re- really? That's when you can check it off. I see. I, I'm going to fall asleep in 30 seconds. Ta-da! I can, I can check it. Check it off. Uh-huh. Yeah. You feel free to do that. But um, then the question comes up is, uh, you know, in these uh, religious schemes where, you know, it's all about your moral improvement and moralizing and all that kind of stuff is, is that when can you say, you know, what passage can you point me to that says, okay, I now know that I've crossed the line from from not doing enough good works to doing enough good works so that um uh so that when the rapture happens I, I won't be left behind yeah but can you can you can you when can you make that assertion yeah, I know there's a lot of evangelical angst about the whole uh, rapture thing. And, and you know, and your your big the big concern is you don't want to be left behind. Well, how do you know when you've done enough so that you won't be left behind? Hmm. Isn't that whole idea salvation by works? Yeah, think about it. Okay? Think about it. This whole anxiety, have you done enough to not be left behind? That's not salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. That isn't. That is pure, unadulterated salvation by works. You know, because, I mean, let's just, let's throw this, let's pretend that this is real. This is really what's going to happen. Christ secretly comes back when nobody's looking. You know, he, he, he muffles the trumpet and uh, and you know, kind of sneaks back and and you know, kind of looks down and goes, okay, who's ready to go? Who's re- not ready to go? Okay, uh, who's who's earned a spot in the rapture? Uh, Jimmy, Steve, Billy, and uh, and Tom, they're in, and Sarah, Jessica, and uh, Elijah, no, they they got to stay. They 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 just haven't done enough to be worthy to be <clears throat> raptured. Is that salvation by works or salvation by grace? That's salvation by works. So when can you say you've done enough so that you won't get left behind? Where's your peace? There isn't any peace. There is no peace in a legalistic salvation scheme, none. But in Christ, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, 
by Christ's vicarious life and death and resurrection for your sins and for your justification, knowing that what everything Jesus did is sufficient for your salvation, there is life and peace and there's no anxiety. There's no striving. No striving to be saved because you can't. And that frees you. It frees you to now love your neighbor as yourself because you're not loving your neighbor as yourself so that you can do enough things to somehow think that maybe, just maybe, you'll be taken in the rapture. See, when you do a good work for your neighbor so that you can be saved, so that you won't be left behind, that, that's not a good work. That's a selfish work. That's, a, that's not a good work done out of pure love for your neighbor. That's a selfish work done to save your own skin. And that's not what Christianity teaches. Christ's life and death on the cross is sufficient to save even you, even me. And you don't have to strive to and worry about whether or not you're going to be left behind. Christ has done it all for you. And now you are free to love God and love your neighbor, set free from the demands of the law, which says, do this and you will live. If you don't do it, you're going to die. You're going to burn in hell because it's been done for you. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And it's through the freedom that Christ has won for us on the cross, that freedom from the demands of the law, that now we are set free from the bondage to sin, death, and the devil, and the angst of trying to set ourselves free from that prison, because you can't set yourself free. When we've been set free, and now we can love God, and we can love our neighbor from a pure heart. Not striving, not trying to turn our good works into a wage. Just do them freely and ridiculously for the good of our neighbor. And Jesus himself says, and you know, consider yourself a servant. You know, after you've done everything you've been told to do, say, oh, we're wicked servants because we've only done what we've been told to do. Right. Right. Love and serve your neighbor in peace. When I come to the radio every day, I'm not doing this to make it so that I don't have to be left behind or worry about how I'm going to get into heaven. If I don't do enough hours on the radio, I won't get to heaven. (laughs) That's ridiculous. I do this out of the pure joy and freedom I have in loving and serving Christ and serving you, the listeners of this program. Having been set free from the demands of the law, I'm now free to do good works for you. The reality is, is that when we all get to heaven, I mean, isn't there a scene in the in the in the book of Revelation where you know at the end, you know, everyone's given these crowns and they end up <laughs> casting the crowns at the foot of Christ? It makes perfect sense. I don't need no crown. I didn't even earn the crown. Why would I why would I be given a crown? Christ is the one who's done it all. Everything. So anyway, those are just my opening thoughts. So let's talk about what we're going to talk about today on fighting for the faith. Eh, today, let's see here. 
I'm not going <laughs> to last two days, two really long programs with uh, with not a lot of uh, news stories. Yeah, I've been, you know, <sighs> answering emails and other things here. OK, let's see. I want to talk about Ergen Kaner. He's in the news again. Um, I do want to talk about this Bishop Eddie Long thing, but not for the reasons that you might think. And then yesterday I did not get to um, the story about um, Arch- the Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams. Um, he-, he has no problem with celibate gay bishops. And this is very subtle, and I want to kind of point out the issue with this thing. And I want to get to this uh, Phil Johnson post. He posted a Spurgeon quote on the offense of the cross. Want to get to that? More news about that the Arab Fest preachers. I want to get to that, and then also, uh, uh, sir, <laughs> I, there's a lot of stories I want to get to. Just you know, tell you what. Well, let's just dive in, and we'll see how many we get done in the first hour, and then in the second hour we have a, a good sermon review, and it's a short one. And uh, this one is a follow up to Monday's edition of Fighting for the Faith. On Monday we. Um, we reviewed a uh, pastor from Auckland, New Zealand, whose name is Paul DeJong, and uh, it was just a uh, prosperity train wreck, absolute prosperity train wreck. And uh, the the, uh, the sermon he preached was called Blessed to Bless, and uh, complete mangling of God's Word, and it was a sermon on money. Well, it just so happens that uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, at Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in Hacienda Heights, uh, Pastor Bill Swirla uh, did a sermon on, well, Luke chapter 16 and money. And, you know, it, 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 this, I was listening to the sermon going, wow, this could not be a sharper contrast. So I didn't do the sermon review yesterday. We're doing it today. And this is a follow-up, which I think provides like a really sound biblical counterweight to the really bad Bible twisting that we heard from Paul DeJean in Auckland. And it's kind of an extra bonus for our listeners down there, our, our, our Kiwi friends down there in New Zealand. So um, that will be what we do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. It'll be shorter on purpose so that you all can catch up, you know, because, you know, the, I think the last thing you all want to see happen is another three-hour-long edition of Fighting for the Faith showing up in your iTunes podcasting account. I, you know, sometimes it's, it's necessary. It's it's an occupational hazard, you know. Anyway, so with that, I'll just, you know, let's dive into the program proper, and I'll just randomly pick news stories to talk about. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. All right, I'll do the AP story. From the Associated Press, survey, Americans don't know much about religion. <laughs> you think? <sighs> A new survey of Americans' knowledge of religion found that atheists, agnostics, Jews, and Mormons outperformed Protestants and Roman Catholics in answering questions about major religions, while many respondents could not correctly give the most basic tenets of their own faith. <laughs> I could have told you that without the survey, man. I, <sighs> yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Well, how would you know, Chris? Because I listened to the survey. I think I have the world's largest collection of sermons. I, I really do. I, um, I, I'm thinking that uh, you know, should the Lord tarry. And uh, we, uh, as my life draws to a close, I, I think I think I should donate my digital collection of sermons uh, to uh, to a museum dedicated to, um, uh, uh, well, like the Museum of Idolatry, dedicated to exposing false doctrine and making every thought captive and making obedient to Christ. I think oh, that'd be a good thing. 
Yeah, because in li- listening to the preaching that come, that's coming from uh, most pulpits, I mean, you, you all get samplings of it here at uh, at uh, Fighting for the Faith in the Sermon Reviews, but you got to keep this in mind, is that for every sermon that makes the cut, there's probably five or six sermons that I either listen to in full or in part that don't make the cut. Uh, because each edition of Fighting for for the Faith, there is an unspoken topic that I'm trying to, uh, you know, re, you know, that kind of is the center of gravity in each of the uh, editions of Fighting for the Faith, and so I'm always looking for the sermon that that really helps helps highlight what I'm trying to teach and bring out in God's Word. And so anyway, but anyway, but it, so I'm not surprised that the Associated Press, this is by Rachel Zoll, by the way, of the AP, who is an AP religion uh, writer, uh, that um, <clears throat> that many Protestant respondents could not correctly give the most basic tenets of their own faith. 45% of Roman Catholics who participated in the study didn't know that, according to church teaching, the bread and wine used in Holy commun- Communion is not just a symbol, but becomes the body and blood of Christ. 45% of Roman Catholics don't understand that the Roman Catholic Church teaches transubstantiation? Wow. More than half of Protestants could not identify Martin Luther as the person who inspired the Protestant Reformation in about four... More than half. More than half. Uh, yeah, uh-huh. okay, and about 4 in 10, that's 40%, Jews did not know that uh, Maimonides, uh, one of the greatest rabbis and intellectuals in history, was Jewish. The survey released Tuesday by the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life aimed to test a broad range of religious knowledge, including understanding of the Bible, core teachings of different faiths, and major figures in religious history. Uh, The U.S. is one of the most religious countries in the developed world, especially compared to largely secular Western Europe, but faith leaders and educators have long lamented that Americans still know relatively little about religion. Now, okay, just can I ask a basic logical type question here i mean seriously okay think about this for a second i mean the way this is being portrayed and the way i'm seeing how this is being written about in the blogosphere um you know people you know always have to opine and of course i gotta weigh in on this um that it's generally viewed as well not a positive thing that the majority of uh, protestants don't know the basics the basic tenets or doctrines of their own faith. Um, that being the case, if this is really a bad thing, okay, if, if, that it's it, you know it's it's rather embarrassing, if you would, uh, a survey like this, you know what this is? It's this is like a report card, okay. Y'all remember back to when you were in high school or college, okay? You know what would happen is is that you know you 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 would do work and then your your teacher would give you an A, B, C, or D, depending on you know uh, how much you were putting into it, right? Um, in the same way, everybody who's had a job has gotten one of those quarterly or half-yearly or annual job performance reviews. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this survey is like that. This is like a job performance review. And so you know, here, let's take a look. Okay. Here's the job performance review for Protestant pastors. Um, now, just working with sheer percentages, okay, Um more than half of Protestants, that would be 51% or somewhere higher than that, could not identify Martin Luther as a person who inspired the Protestant Reformation. 
Um, yeah, that, you know, they that forty five percent of them could not. Um, you know, the the majority of them could not correctly give the most basic tenets of their own faith. That being the case, overall, this is kind of a collective here. Um, this is you know, uh, this is a job performance review, and we have to basically come to the conclusion from this is that if this is what's really happening in uh, the, this, if this is reflecting the job performance of pastors, well, we might want to consider firing pretty much most of them. Yeah, yeah, and replacing them with te- you know, for, for instance, okay, what if, okay, wh- what if there was a school in your neighborhood, okay, let's uh, that your children were well, they were required to attend, okay, and um, and the overall performance of that school was this: is that, um, you know, flip a coin, fifty percent of the those who attended that school. 50% had no chance of actually learning anything. Um, you don't know what they do for four years with those kids, but when they come out, they will not pass a high school proficiency exam. They will not qualify for college. Uh, they won't even get a diploma. And um, pretty much the entire school, well, it's kind of a farce. I mean, they're taking all kinds of money. I mean, and, you know, tax dollars and things like that. But they're not, well, actually, you know, educating people, right? Um, so if your kid went to that school, they would have a 50% chance of actually graduating and another 50% chance. Well, they wouldn't graduate at all because they would be dumber than a box of rocks. Okay. Um, now that being the case, 50% of the, of the pastors in Protestant churches in the United States are failing to teach the Christian faith. 50% of them. I can name some pretty big mega churches in the seeker driven movement that I think are probably likely candidates for contributing significantly to the numbers in this survey. Okay. In other words, they're failing according to the biblical standard to, you know, what did Jesus say? Go and make disciples. What's a disciple? Oh, a disciple's a learner. Oh, what do they learn? What the scriptures teach, what the Christian faith is, sound biblical doctrine. Okay. And so. Fifty percent of the pastors, well, they're as worthless as a, a, a teacher at a school where fifty percent of the people won't even graduate. That being ca- the case, I mean, I mean, wouldn't the city be up in arms, you know, about a school like that? I mean, wouldn't there be teachers, you know, protesting at school board meetings and trying to get media attention, basically say we've got to do something, right? I mean, and the logical thing to basically do would be to send somebody in there with the authority to, well, you know, kick a little t- tail end. You, you know what I'm saying? Go in there and basically say, all right, here's the deal. You know, I mean, seriously, in a situation like that, I think the right thing to basically do is you go in and you go like, and you go to the school. Let's say you become the principal or the the school, the you know, the president of the school district. What I would do in a situation like that is you basically go in. About three weeks before the school year starts and you fire every single teacher and you make them reapply and re-interview for their job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You fire every one of them and then make them re-interview for their job. It's pretty simple. So then what would happen is, is that the teachers who were, well, I don't know, 
playing uh, that farm game, Farmville on uh, Facebook during class time rather than teaching. Uh, and it, you know, their students were all, you know, weren't learning math or lo- science or whatever. That teacher, well, wouldn't be rehired because, yeah, there's important things that need to be done in school, and that requires an education, and that requires teachers to, well, you know, actually teach and to, you know, and that the students learn and and you know the, that that whole thing. So I'd fire every one of the teachers and then make them reapply. The ones who were actually doing their job would be become, become very clear that they were. Uh, doing their job, they'd be rehired. The ones who weren't doing their job, they'd be fired. And it, it, it well, fired is just sounds so negative. You know what they sh- you know, basically you should invite them to play on somebody else's team. Yeah, see that I think that's a positive way of putting it. But uh, so uh, this survey basically shows that fifty percent of Protestant pastors aren't doing their job of making disciples and teaching sound doctrine and. So I I think um folks uh this is uh this is a job performance review. Think of the survey as a job performance review. It's time for um some pastors to be invited to play on somebody else's team or to um you know uh, to have a lateral com- career move outside of the church and to use their farmville skills in, in a different context. I mean I'm you, you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, you, you get what I'm talking. Ta- yeah, they lateral moves. It's a, that's that's what needs to happen right now. But I don't think a lot of people in congregations have the stomach to do that. They would rather have the people in their congregations continue to be, well, not taught the word of God, <clears throat> than you know, than do the thorny thing of you know confronting a pastor, calling him to repentance. Or inviting him to play on somebody else's team. You know, I my suggestion to be this, okay? Uh, the pastors who aren't actually passing along the Christian faith uh, in baseball, okay? You know, they 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 make you know they make particular players free agents and they trade them to other teams. This is real simple, okay? What we do is all of the Protestant pastors who aren't actually teaching the Christian faith and watering the message down and all that kind of stuff, we round them up and as a collective, what we do is we trade them. To Islam, yeah. Think about it. Um, and and what you know, yeah. You and we don't need any imams back. You know, this would be this would be like an act of love and charity on our part. We trade all the pastors who are worthless and actually teaching the Christian faith, and we trade them to Islam. I'm telling you, you do that within 30 years. Islam won't even exist anymore. Yeah, just think about it. All right, we're up on our first break. If you would like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, pirate Christian. We'll be right back. ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> It's 
Python's Flying Circus Church. Thanks for calling Saddleback Customer Service. This is Josh. How can I help you today? Yes, I would like to return the Jesus I received from you. I heard there was a 60-day return policy. Yes, sir, there is. But can I ask you why you want to return Jesus? Well, I was told if I received Jesus, he'd fix all my problems. And quite honestly, I'm not satisfied with this Jesus. Sir, what is your Jesus doing right now? Nothing. He just sits there. Have you taken time to feed your Jesus? Well, I went to church for the preaching, but nothing has happened. Sir, if you read the fine print on the warranty, you'll see that you are responsible for feeding, not the church or the pastor. Oh. Well, can I exchange this Jesus for another? Sir, what kind of Jesus are you looking for? I need the Jesus that forgives sins. You know, changes your life on the inside, helps you overcome the sins of the flesh, never leaves me nor forsakes me, and will take me to heaven when I die. Oh, I'm sorry, sir. We don't stock that Jesus here. You'll have to go somewhere else to have that Jesus. Well, I guess I'll just stick with the one I got since I already opened the box. Wonderful, sir. Can I interest you in getting Jesus for your friends and family? Why would I do that? Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, if you're a pastor and you're not doing your job, we're coming after you. <laughs> we're going to trade you to Islam. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to post office box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, uh, next, well, let's see here, real quick here, follow-up news on the uh, the preachers at uh, the Arab Fest. Uh, they're, 
uh, they were acquitted. I read that story yesterday, but uh, Lawrence D. Jones from the Christian Post uh, has a, a new story called Arab Fest Preachers to Sue Michigan uh, City Over Arrests. The attorney who represented, four, uh, who represented four street preachers accused of breaching the peace at an Arab festival said Monday that he plans to file a civil lawsuit against the city of Dearbornistan, Michigan, following their acquittals last week. They, the missionaries, spent the night, by the way, Dearbornistan is not the real name of it, but <clears throat> just something I, yeah. Anyway, they, the missionaries, spent the night in jail for doing nothing but attend an Arab festival and dare to discuss their faith. That can't happen in the United States. Robert Muis of uh, the Thomas More Law Center said Monday morning on the Detroit-based radio station, uh, station WJRAM 760, quote, The only way we can totally exonerate them is to get these nonsensical rules, he added, uh, to get the, is, to, is to get these, get them. Uh, they... they they have these Arab festival rules, but we ha- also have the United States Constitution, and the Constitution trumps, and that that's what we're going to assert in our civil lawsuit. So, yeah, uh, that's I think this is rather interesting. We'll see how this uh, develops, but I think that's the right way to go because, yeah, in the United States, the Constitution is supposed to trump, and, uh, yeah, these kids did not um, – well, they weren't actually um, – breaching the peace at all they've been acquitted and i think it's a logical move to go after dearborn uh to uh, get them to obey the constitution uh, not this other stuff here um there's something i wanted to get to uh now for two days but i did not get to something really quick here uh, uh phil johnson pyromaniacs uh blog fine 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 blog although you know <clears throat> i don't know if you've noticed this phil johnson he's a calvinist yeah it's true yeah Love my Calvinist brothers. I'm not a Calvinist, but you know I I love these guys. And he he often quotes Spurgeon. I think on a on a weekly basis he has a major Spurgeon quote. And I got a lot of deep respect for Spurgeon. Much 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 deep respect. I mean, there's many 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 things I can say amen to with uh, Spurgeon. I think we both confess the same Christ and the same gospel. So and a lot more than that. But anyway, this is I thought this was a great quote um, regarding the offense of the cross. Spurgeon speaks. He says, My dear brethren, do not try to make the gospel tasteful to carnal minds. Hear, hear, amen. Yes, we need to be hearing this today. Hide not the offense of the cross, lest you make it of none effect. <sighs> yeah, yeah. See, I don't think Spurgeon would have been, you know, if it, you know, I don't think the people in his congregation, if the Pew Research and Religion Forum folks had taken a survey of of Spurgeon's church at the time, I think more than 50% of them would have been able to communicate the basic tenets of the Christian faith. What do you think? <clears throat> Yes, let me read that again. My dear brethren, do not try to make the gospel tasteful to carnal minds. Hide not the offense of the cross, lest you make it of none effect. The ang- uh, the angles and the corners of the gospel are its strength. To pare them off is to deprive it of its power. Toning down is not the increase of strength, but is the death of it. Why, even among the sects, you must have noticed that their distinguishing points are the horns of their power, and when these are practically omitted, the the sect is effete. Learn then that if you take Christ out of Christianity, Christianity is 
dead. If you remove grace out of the gospel, the gospel is gone. If the people do not like the doctrine of grace, give them all the more of it. (laughs) I love this. Let me read that again. If the people do not like the doctrine of grace, give them all the more of it. Whenever its enemies rail at a certain kind of gun, a wise military power will provide more of such artillery. (laughs) This is so good. A great general going in before his king stumbled over his own sword. I see, said the king, your sword is on the way. The warrior answered, your majesty's enemies have often felt the same. That our gospel offends the king's enemies is no regret to us. <sighs> Just bask in the glory of that one. Wow. Amen and amen. Oh, to, to pray, pray right now that God raises up thousands of Spurgeons because we need them today all over the world. All right, moving along here, uh, an article I wanted to get to yesterday and the day before, but I didn't get to. And I, I just want to point the, this out by way of there's something seriously wrong with this. This is all part of what I consider the liberal agenda, and I'll explain what I mean here. Uh, the headline uh, reads, Anglican had no problem with celibate gay bishops. Uh, this is by Jenna Lyle of the uh, Christian Post. And uh, just listen to the headline again. Anglican head, that would be the Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, who publicly makes it clear that he's uh, that he's a left wing, uh, you know, uh, liberal, says that he has no problem with celibate gay bishops. Now, words mean things. Words mean things. Okay, and there's something seriously wrong with this, and we've seen this tactic before. Where have we seen this before? Well, in the United States Episcopal churches and in the like the United Methodist Church and in the Church of Christ, the liberal mainline denominations. This was one of their stepping stones towards uh, as they are moving as they moved towards and in the case of the ELCA, they have already arrived at affirming homosexual relationships. Okay, And this is actually one of the stepping stones in that direction. And the reason why is because the premises of this thing are all off. Okay, Now let me read some of these stories. The Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, has given his strongest endorsement of gay bishops yet in an interview with the Times Magazine. Dr. Rowan Williams spoke of his personal support for bishops who are gay but said they must remain celibate. Quote, there's no problem about a gay person who's a bishop. It's about the fact that they that there are traditionally historical standards that the clergy are expected to observe, he said. Traditionally historically standards that a clergy are expected to observe? When asked what was wrong with a gay bishop having a partner, the Anglican spiritual leader said, the scriptural and traditional approach doesn't give much ground for being positive about it. Ah, I see. He admitted that there was still no agreement on the issue, saying that the church doesn't quite know what to make of it, acknowledged that discussing it can lead to difficulties for homosexuals living in countries where opposition to homosexuality is strong. Now, I'm going to pause right there. What's wrong with this? There's something seriously, seriously wrong with this. There is? Well, I mean, are you saying, Chris, that you have a problem with a gay gay pastor or bishop uh, that's celibate? Yeah, well, 
funny that you would ask it that way. And here's the reason why. Um, the Bible doesn't give us, when it comes to our sexuality, when it comes to what we are, the Bible gives us two choices, and you're born this way. You are either male or you're female. Okay. Now, when it comes to like our skin color, you you can be black, you can be white, you can be, uh, uh, you know, uh, kind of like light brown Hispanic. You can be, uh, you know, the 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 different color skin that the uh, Asians have. I mean, people call it yellow. I don't think it's really yellow, but but you understand what I'm saying that you know. And so people are born, you know, male or female, and born with a particular ethnic color or race or whatever. But uh, notice here that the assumption that is that the the unspoken assumption the 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 unchallenged premise of all of this language is that somehow homosexuality is it's like a, it's like a third category um of sex you know um you you're either male female or you're homosexual yeah the bible doesn't give that uh, doesn't give us the ability to identify that now biblically here's the deal homosexual behavior okay is a sin committed by either male or female persons now are you seeing it yeah and so let me put it to put it the way i think biblically we could argue it i don't have a problem with somebody being a bishop in the church who is a repentant sinner, and the sin that he is repenting of, notice I didn't say she, that he is repenting of is the sin of committing homosexual acts, of homosexual perversion, of engaging in homosexual sex. See, those are all sins for which Christ died, every bit as much as the sins that Christ died for as far as heterosexual sexual sins, okay? And those would be sleeping with somebody who's a female who's not your wife, okay? Yeah, all those, any, basically the Bible is reserves sexual intercourse for married male and female couples. Everything outside of that, sin, yeah. Everything outside of that is sin. So here Dr. Williams is saying he has no problem with celibate gay bishops. Well, see, no, no, no. I don't have a, pro- I don't have a problem with repentant bishops who've committed the sin of homosexuality. And that's the biblical position. And you know what? Here's the deal. If somebody is a repentant sinner who's committed the sin of homosexuality, he doesn't have to remain celibate. No, and in fact, he can bear fruit in keeping with his repentance by marrying a woman. So you see what I'm saying? This this is like I'm sorry, but the, you know, this is like the the nose of the camel in the tent kind of analogy. This is a step on a road towards affirming homosexuality because the premise here is that somehow gay is a third legitimate category. That somehow people are genetically born this way, and uh, and this is it's an it's an identify it's a it basically an identifying mark. You know, there's there's males, females, and then and then you have male homosexuals, and then you have bi bi, and then you have uh, lesbians. No, male and female. 
biblically that's the case. So, Dr. Williams, I mean, this sounds, oh, this sounds so, you know, like he's holding some kind of a hard line. No, he's not. The language itself opens up the door to redefining things in such a way that eventually, um, you know, the uh, Anglican Church in the UK is on the road to affirming homosexual relationships. The only way to stop this is to say, no, no, no. We don't have a problem with bishops who've repented of the sin of homosexuality, but a bishop who identifies himself as gay but says he's going to stay celibate is not a repentant sinner. Yeah, that's that's not somebody who's repentant. That's somebody who's still hanging on to his gay identity and identifying himself with perversion. Yeah, sorry, yeah. Yeah, the good news is that Christ has died even for this sin. I mean, that's the great news. There in heaven are going to be men and women who have committed homosexual sins, heterosexual sins, all kinds of gross perversions that are going to be in heaven because Christ died for them. And we don't do anybody a favor. In fact, we're not really loving our, our neighbors by not telling them the truth about the fact that this is a sin that needs to be forgiven and that Christ died for it. It's, it's all that simple. I mean, I've got my own pet set of sins for which Christ died, and I'm so thankful, and I daily live in repentance of those sins and dare not identify myself according to those sins. No, I identify myself as a sinner who is saved by the grace of Christ, who has brought me to repentance and to agree with him and his word that those are not good things, but that they are evil and sinful and need to be repented of and that Christ died for them. So just want to bring that up. All right. One, yeah, I'm not going to get to the Bishop Eddie Long thing. I'll have to save that for tomorrow. Um, yeah, I'll save the Bishop Eddie Long thing for tomorrow because I kind of have a different take on this on the Eddie Long thing. Yeah, I mean, everybody's kind of done the thing to death. Um, personally, I think the guy's going down. I mean, f- I mean, seriously. Um, I don't know how on earth he can maintain his, uh, yeah, the facade that he hasn't done anything wrong because I mean, he, even the facade he's put up is pretty flimsy. But uh, a guy by the name of Mike Adams, uh, Mike Adams, who writes for townhall.com, he's a columnist there. He has got a column that uh, was uh, published, I think, this week, and it's entitled Searching for Bonhoeffer. Who nearly? <clears throat> yeah, I, I want to read part of this to you uh, before we go into our second break. Uh, Mike Adams, uh, he's, he's a criminologist, by the way. Yeah, he, let's see, he's a criminology professor at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, and author of the book Feminists Say the Darndest Thing, a politically correct professor confronts women on campus. And so um, this guy's got an interesting column. He, so this is not your normal theologian type. Um, and it's nice to get, well, <clears throat> get voices like this because uh, that way you realize you're not crazy. But uh, so uh, Mike Adams writes, says, during the 1990s, seeker-friendly churches began popping up everywhere. Most were non-denominational churches looking to reach those who fell between the cracks and divides that separate many of our traditional denominations. These seeker-friendly churches did well for a time, and the fact that many are now struggling to pay the bills has less to do with the changing economy than it does with the changing culture. Yeah, I mean, you, th- you think of, there's quite a few megachurches that financially are, mm-hmm, well, they're struggling. 
uh, not just the Crystal Cathedral. And he says, it's no surprise that these churches did well in the 1990s. The economy was strong. People gave charitably. The same can be said of the first seven years of the Bush administration. Many seeker-friendly churches were able to break ground with new buildings, which seated thousands of congregants. No, no, no. Uh, it, you know, <clears throat> thousands of consumers, not congregants, consumers. Big difference. Uh, they were able to fill these big buildings with score bar, scoreboard-sized video monitors yeah, Jumbotrons and all the latest video and computer technology. They even served gourmet coffee. Mm-hmm. But things began to change in 2008. The economy tanked. The churches had to cut back. They hoped that the next election would bring change. But hope was not enough. Men cannot always bring about that kind of change, and only God can bring about lasting change. But the one thing that has started to change in the mega churches is the message. Yeah. Okay, so Mike Adams now is saying that in the megachurches, the message is changing. Wasn't the book The Purpose Driven Church by Rick Warren all about changing the methods without changing the message? Yeah, I'm glad to, I'm glad that somebody else is noticing. Hey, wait a minute. The 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 message be changing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's why I'm doing what I'm doing. Yeah, the message is changing. What once was a slightly watered-down, seeker-friendly version of the gospel is now a slightly gospel-flavored bucket of water. Yeah, that that's a great quote. Yeah, what once was a slightly watered-down, seeker-friendly version of the gospel is now a slightly gospel-flavored bucket of water. Yeah, that's right. Hey, we've got a bucket of water for you now with, with the artificial gospel flavor. And it's not enough to quench the thirst of the masses. And uh, one who has traveled to 22 states this year, I've had an opportunity to hear pastors in several of these megachurches, and I've heard that heard some very interesting things. Some examples follow. Here's example number one. He, uh, you know, Mr. Adams was uh, visiting a seeker-friendly church that he doesn't identify. He said, and this is what he heard, quote, we encourage you to sign up for one of our Bible study classes. We don't say we have all the answers. We may not have any of the answers that you might have. We just want to start a conversation. <clears throat> Adams notes, he says, oddly enough, the church where I heard this little gem doesn't even call itself emergent. Of course, Don Miller claims that he's not emergent, but I'm not buying that jazz. Great quote. Next one, uh, quote number two, quote, this church doesn't focus on doctrine. By the way, whenever you hear a church say, we don't focus on doctrine, no, no, doctrine divides. By the way, that's a doctrine. Doctrine is just a fancy word for teaching. That's like saying, this church, we don't teach nothing here except for that teaching is bad. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. And by the way, I just want to let you all know this. This is a fact. You, in fact, you can take this one to the bank, and I won't even charge you for it. Are you ready? The word doctrine, D-O-C-T-R-I-N-E, is not a four-letter word. Yeah, you don't believe me? Count the letters. Anyway, he says, this church doesn't focus on doctrine. We focus on hope. That's a doctrine, by the way. Um, Adams opines, he says, well, that explains why the pastor rode up onto the stage on a motorcycle. By giving a sermon standing in front of a Harley Davidson instead of a cross, he can avoid the that unpleasant doctrinal stuff about sin and redemption. Pass the Starbucks. This is going to be a good one. Next one, uh, quote number three. If Christianity is going to survive in the 21st century, everything about it must change. 
Yeah, that sounds like a Rick Warren quote, doesn't it? Anyway, uh, it says, you can't be serious with this one, can you? Does that mean I should cast the first stone? Can I cast uh, Can I cast it at the idiot in the pulpit? Wait, there is no pulpit, no cross, nah, never mind. Uh, number four, there's nothing wrong with diversity. Everyone needs diversity, Adam says. But what about people who say they don't need diversity? Are we in danger of excluding them from the conversation? If today's mega churches are anything, they are diverse. They typically have large numbers of traditional Christians as well as large numbers of seekers who may not have been raised in any particular faith tradition. But these days, many megachurches are beginning to show preference for the latter, despite their emphasis on equality and inclusion. And this may prove to be their downfall. By watering down their message to be even more seeker-friendly, today's megachurches are not going to achieve their crass objective to avoid offending people in order to keep their numbers up. And eventually, they're going to and eventually pay their mortgage down. Now, that's right, yeah. Oh, and I'm getting a lot of emails from people all across the world now about you know this. You know, remember my uh, remember the email I read earlier this week from the guy at East Lake. You know, I mean, basically they welcome anybody who isn't a Christian. Yeah, and don't go to church expecting to be to grow spiritually. That's selfish, right? Okay. Instead, their gains with seekers and the easily offended will upset by their losses among those who are farther along in their walks and hence more traditional in their beliefs. This is consequential because the traditionalists, not the liberal Christian or the seeker, is always the first one to open his wallet. That's right. Our culture is in rapid decline as we enter the Obama post-Christian phase of American history. People are in search of bold, fearless pastors who will take a stand against evil in blunt and uncompromising, not coded and esoteric language. Amen, hear, hear. In the end, pastors who refuse to mold the gospel to accommodate to the spiritual needs of the, quote, seeker, the financial needs of the church, will be the last ones standing. We always have been, by the way. And Adam says that he predicts that many in the mega churches of today will be uh, the shopping malls of tomorrow. When it is time to foreclose and go packing, someone is going to have some heavy equipment to move. At least no one will have to pick up their cross. Woo! <laughs> A great article. Yeah, the name of it is uh, Searching for Bonhoeffer, and you can find it at Town Hall. Dot com. All right, we're up on our second break. When we get back, we got a good sermon review and a short one from Pastor William Swirla on Luke chapter 16, the opening verses, and it's about money, and it's a kind of a compliment. Uh, it's a counterbalancing uh, sermon to the one that we heard on Monday from uh, Paul DeJong down there in Auckland, New Zealand. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We will be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
The sissy, frenzy, turning for the written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. It probably won't even be a full hour. I'm giving you all a little bit of an opportunity to catch up. A good sermon, no need to interrupt much through, and this is given specifically as a counterbalance to the false teaching on money that we heard from Pastor Paul DeJong of Life Church in Auckland, New Zealand, earlier this week on Monday. So let's cue up the sermon review music and let's dive right into it. the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermon review our sermon comes to us via holy trinity lutheran church hacienda heights california pastor william swirla presiding the name of the sermon what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of god The sermon is based upon the gospel text, Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 15. In fact, I'll let you read it on your own if you like. You know, it's been a while since I've heard this ukulele version. It just, I'm so happy that I'm listening to this right now. All right, let me kill the music. 
can't bring myself to do it. All right, look. Press the button, Rosebro. Press the button. All right, I was enjoying it. Anyway, so without any further ado, here is Pastor William Swirla, Holy Trinity Lutheran Church, Hacienda Heights, California, in uh, you know, in his money sermon. Yeah, I recommend this as a strong counterweight, counterbalance to what you heard on Monday's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Here we go. In the name of Jesus. Here again, the words of our Lord from Luke chapter 16. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. There are Sundays when the lectionary readings make me wish that I could just pick my own text. Maybe do a nice sermon series on some benign self-help topic. Today is one of those Sundays. The gospel has a bunch of sayings of Jesus all clustered around that very uncomfortable topic, namely your money, calling it unrighteous mammon and capping it off with a parable of a crooked money manager who's praised for his shrewdness. Money is always a dangerous topic. Luther said the wallet is the most sensitive organ of the human body. And the closer we get, the more uncomfortable people get. Don't dare touch my wallet. The Old Testament reading, which is paired to the gospel, isn't any better. It has Amos blasting away at the Israelite businessmen and farmers of the north for not being able to stay away from church for the sake of their business deals. Couldn't wait to get out of worship. Couldn't wait to be to, to uh, chisel the poor, to exploit labor, to engage in un fair and corrupt business practices, and reminding them that the Lord will not forget either their greed or their crooked dealings. The epistle, which is not connected to the Old Testament or the gospel, is from 1 Timothy, and it starts off on a great note about praying for kings and rulers and all in authority, reminding us that it's God's will to save everyone, every single person, that everyone should come to the knowledge of the truth in Christ through the one mediator who is Jesus Christ, God's Son. But then Paul goes off on some instruction regarding prayer about women dressing modestly, including a criticism of braided hair, pearls, and gold, and an admonition that women should learn in silence and are not permitted to hold pastoral authority because Eve was deceived. Hmm. Given the choices, then, what's a preacher to do on a Sunday like this? Let's talk about money, shall we? That seems to be the safest of all the topics here. (laughs) So, first the parable. Jesus is telling this parable to his disciples in the hearing of the Pharisees, who, according to Luke, were lovers of money. A certain rich man had a money manager who was sitting on his assets, so to speak, wasting his possessions and generally not doing much of a job. And so the rich man calls him in, demands the books, and fires him on the spot. On his way back to the office to retrieve the books, the manager does a bit of his own accounting, and he realizes that he's got a bit of a problem on his hands. When the word gets out that he's been fired, no one will hire him as a manager, and he's way too much out of shape from sitting around at a desk to dig, and he's too proud to beg. So what will he do? He devises a clever little plan. 
Before anyone hears about his being fired, the manager calls in some of the rich man's tenants, possibly deadbeat tenants who weren't paying their rent anyway, and he begins to discount their bills radically. One owes a hundred measures of oil. He says, quickly, take your bill, write 50. Another owes a hundred measures of wheat, and he says, hurry up, write 80. Now, two possibilities exist here, and I don't know which one it is. Either the manager is giving up on his cut, his share of the take. You know, he's kind of free to take whatever he wanted, providing that his master got his allotted shares. So he might have been giving up his commission, or even funnier, he's discounting his former master's um, obligations and contracts. In either case, he's making friends on borrowed time. Because as soon as the word gets out that he's been fired, all bets are literally off. And the master or the Lord, you can't tell from the text who's commending the servant here, whether it's the master in the parable or the Lord, commends, yes, commends this faithful manager for his shrewdness. And Jesus notes that the sons of this world are a heck of a lot shrewder in dealing with their own than the enlightened sons of light, that is, believers or the citizens of heaven, namely you and me. What makes the money manager shrewd is that he rightly assessed the urgency of the situation and he acted on it with the means that he had, cashing in on his master's good name and reputation while there was still time and time was running out. So that when he was unemployed, he wouldn't wind up sleeping in the streets since now he had some new friends, all those people for whom he had renegotiated a sweet deal. And just so Jesus says to his disciples, use your unrighteous mammon, your unrighteous mammon, to gain eternal friends so that when it fails, and it will ultimately and eventually fail, You will have lots of eternal friends who will welcome you into eternal dwellings. Now, this is not to say that you get into heaven by giving away your money, though your money, as idolatrous mammon, can certainly keep you out of heaven. It means that you are masters of your money and you are servants of the Lord. For you cannot serve two masters, you cannot serve both God and mammon at the same time, One of them has to give. And this gets to the principal reason, I think, behind the idea of offerings. We try to make offerings a practical matter. Look at the budget, the expenses, the needs, the assets, the liabilities. But that's not really the point of offerings. That's the temporal side of offerings, which which is quite important, but it's only a temporal thing. The chief purpose of offering is to loosen our grip on our money, lest our money turn into mammon, an idol, in our own hands. In other words, the best way to prevent wealth from becoming an idol is to give it away, to show it who's the boss, to order it around, tell it to help that poor man over there or feed that hungry man over here. It means that we use wealth that we have not in view of this life, but in view of eternal life, 
the eternal life that is ours in Jesus. Wealth fails. It always does. Just as our health will fail. Just as our life will fail. Inevitably, inexorably. The current economic events tell us this. Money, investments, pension funds. These are nothing to put your faith, hope, and trust in. It will fail. It will drag you down with it. Only the, only the word of the Lord endures forever. The treasure that endures is the treasure of heaven, not the treasures of this world. And so we handle the wealth of this world as citizens of another world, citizens of heaven, who deal in eternal currency, whose value is determined by the Son of God, who loved us and who bought us by the shedding of his own blood on the cross. You can tell much about the faith condition of a person by how he or she handles wealth, money. Jesus said on another occasion, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you want to see where your heart actually is, follow the money. You'll find your heart. You may be surprised at the outcome when you look at the tracks, as you see all the idols to whom you make sacrifices. Look at the register of your checkbook. Look at the printout from your charge card. It will tell you where your heart actually is. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will follow. And it will tell you what your servant has been up to lately. Remember, you are master of your money. You are servants of the Lord. Faithfulness in little means faithfulness in much, Jesus says. Faithfulness in things temporal reflects faithfulness in things eternal. If you haven't been a faithful steward of something as fleeting as money, why should God entrust you with eternal treasures? And the honest answer is, he shouldn't. The reality is, our hearts are divided, and we indeed try to serve two masters, hoping they don't recognize what's going on. We put in our God time here, can't wait to get out of here. And then like the Israelites of Amos' day, it's back to business as usual, sometimes even on Sunday afternoon. Jesus nailed the Pharisees that day in their love of money. He said, you justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. God knows what's going on with us. He knows our fears. He knows our loves. He knows our trusts. And what we exalt and what we hold so high and so dear, God considers abominable, putting us in roughly the same position as that crooked money manager in the parable who was asked to turn in the books. Can you imagine a heavenly audit of the books of your life? Can you imagine God examining what you have done with all the things that he's entrusted to you? Can you, exam can you imagine a close examination of how you have handled your money and what you've done with it? Whom do you serve, God or mammon? Do you use your wealth or are you used by it? Does money serve you or do you serve it? Jesus was tempted in this way. He was tempted by mammon, by wealth. The devil, 
dangled all the glories and the riches of the world in front of Jesus, all in exchange for one little moment of faithlessness, one little bit of false worship. He said, all these things could be yours, Jesus, in exchange for one little thing, bow down and worship me. And Jesus resisted. He said, no, you will worship the Lord your God and him alone will you serve. Jesus was faithful. He served his father alone with single-minded service. And he did it in our humanity. He did it in our flesh and blood. He did it as one of us. He did it for us. Where we love wealth, Jesus loved God. Where we pursue comfort, Jesus pursued the cross. Where we look for profit and gain, Jesus took loss. Where we gladly bow down even to the devil for even a sampling of this world's riches, Jesus renounced this world's riches and worshiped God. Where we are faithless in little, Jesus is faithful in much. Where we exalt power and wealth and fame, Jesus exalts righteousness and faithfulness and love and self-sacrifice. What is exalted among men is despised by God. And it is conversely true that what is exalted by God is despised by men. Jesus, crucified, risen, reigning, exalted at the right hand of God, is despised and ridiculed in the sight of men. A sinner justified before God, not by who he is or by what he has done, but on account of Jesus and what he has done. That is despised by men and esteemed by God. In the end, and there is a coming end when the wealth of this world fails, when the global economy finally collapses under the weight of its own greed and consumptiveness, when the idol of mammon is finally exposed as the worthless fraud that it is, when you have lost everything, everything, including your own life, there is at that end only Jesus who will not fail you. There is only Jesus who will welcome you into an eternal dwelling that he has won for you by trading out his life for your life. You're baptized into Jesus. His life is yours. His faithfulness is yours. His kingdom and all the treasures of that kingdom are yours. You literally have nothing to lose in this life, even if you die as a beggar like Lazarus, which, by the way, is the parable that follows this one. And having nothing to lose, being dead to this world and dead to self, turns out to be the best and the freest position there can be in this life. Look at the parable again. Look at the parable again. When did the crooked money manager finally do his job? When he lost his job. When he had nothing to gain, when he had lost everything, finally, he actually was collecting debts on behalf of his master, which he hadn't been doing before. Had he been that aggressive 
Had he taken that much initiative while he was in the employ of his master, he'd never have been fired in the first place. See, that's like the parable of the man who fell among the thieves and the good Samaritan. Is only when you are free of the law can you actually do the law. Only when you are free from the chains of your wealth and hold it freely in the dead hand of faith, can you actually master your wealth and serve God? That's what Jesus desires here. He wants to free you from your wealth so that you might be free to serve him and master your money. You are that free, dear baptized child of God. You are that free. In Christ, you have the riches of heaven laid up in trust for you. You lack nothing. In Christ, you have an eternal dwelling that awaits you, of which the dwellings we live in are nothing. They're being eaten away by termites, and one day a big whacking earthquake is going to tip them over. In Christ, you have citizenship in a country that will never fall. This one will. Heaven will not. In Christ, you are a servant of God, and you are a Lord and master of your money. This calls for shrewdness, the shrewdness of faith that cashes in on the good name of Jesus and lives as though you had nothing in this world to lose. In the name of Jesus. Ah, great sermon couldn't have added and anything to it. that was just thought provoking profound exegetical exegetical expository and we heard Christ yeah great biblical counterweight to what we heard Paul DeJong say oh yeah mammon's a spirit it's a demon yeah right yeah uh-huh yeah All right, need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it along to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.